In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So, lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. In this episode, we fly with the London-based chef, writer, and food activist Zoe Ajanya to Ghana, where her father was born. If you're not familiar with Zoe, she's on a mission to bring African food to the masses. She's the mind behind Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, a former pop-up in London, and a supper club that has toured Germany and the United States, and a cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, among many other things. In the story we're about to hear, we'll discover how Zoe learned to cook, first as a young kid mimicking the Ghanaian foods her dad taught her to make, like spicy peanut butter-laced ground nut stew, and then as a young chef opening her pop-up. But a decade into her cooking career, Zoe realized she needed to connect with her family roots and learn more about the food of Ghana, a place she hadn't been since she was a baby. And so she started in Accra, where she was welcomed with open arms and open kitchens. My whole relationship with Ghana and food is one from a complicated identity. By that I mean I have an Irish immigrant mother and a Ghanaian immigrant father. I'm actually the first English person in my entire family. And still, I always felt like an immigrant growing up. I had no reference point for what English was apart from the TV, I suppose. Ireland, on the other hand, was so close we travelled there often, every available school holiday. 
So I had a good sense of what Irish culture was and how I fitted into that landscape. But I just didn't know what being Ghanaian meant. I didn't have any Ghanaian family in London around me. And my dad was an inconsistent presence in my childhood. So I had no understanding of what Ghanaian culture was about. Except, that is, when my dad was cooking food. During the time that my dad was present, nine times out of ten, my memories involve food. At home, he would have his corner store blue carrier plastic bag full of kenke and tilapia, shito. These amazing, diverse, different textures, different flavours, different smelling ingredients. They were so vastly different to anything else going on in the kitchen at home. They were mesmerising. And I noticed especially that my dad would only cook for himself. Not that he was some extraordinary cook or had some flair or anything. It was a very basic, meditative way of him evoking comfort and memory of the place in this new home, London, through those ingredients. I was a curious kid, so I started to pay attention to him cooking. I started to stand by him and get brave enough eventually to ask questions about it all, but learning mostly by osmosis. I was a latchkey kid, which meant I cooked for myself a lot. I made school lunches for me and my sister, and that grew into me cooking for my mates or friends. One of the dishes that became a key grounding tool for me was groundnut soup. It's a beautifully simple dish that my dad brought into the home and my Irish mum, ironically, eventually taught me how to make. In our house, we call it peanut butter stew. It's a really beautiful dish. It's sweet and spicy. It has this amazing piquancy. It has a very irresistible smell. That peanut smell with the sweetness and then the spice together. It's intoxicating. And when you eat it, it feels like you're just swallowing hugs. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It's so comforting. Over the next decade, it turned into something I would whip up for my friends after school or for dinner parties. People loved it. Friends would nag me to make it, and I didn't mind. It was my favourite food and still is. And it's the dish that I started cooking outside my flat during a neighbourhood open studio called Hackney Wicked Arts Festival back in 2010. And it's the dish that people lined up down the street for. It's the dish that inspired my business, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, and it came with a lot of questions. That day outside my front door, people didn't know where Ghana was. People had never heard of plantain. So many questions and stereotypes were spinning around, and I started to think, why don't people know about this cuisine? Why don't people know where Ghana is on a map? Eventually, I started to consider the mission statement for my business. That's when I came up with bringing African food to the masses, in air quotes. I was really trying to break down the stereotypes around the food and to get people to have a new relationship with it as a healthy type of cuisine. I wanted to platform it in the same way that any other cuisine had been platformed in the UK. I busied myself with that for a couple of years. But I realised that I was running out of recipes because my dad had only ever cooked between eight to ten different things at home and they had formed the basis of my menu. In the background to all this is another story. My parents were very young when they had me and didn't have much money. So I ended up getting sent back to Ghana as a baby to live with my grandmother. It was supposed to be for a set amount of time. However, that amount of time ended up getting extended to my mother's dismay. That created for her, when I eventually came back six months later, a reticence to have much to do with Ghana. My childhood, or rather my infancy there, was a mystery to me. So, I had figured out that I really needed to go to Ghana. 
on a professional level to expand my knowledge of the food and ingredients. But I also wanted to reconnect with my family and to understand who I was through knowing them. Going to Ghana in my 30s as an outspoken, out gay woman, fiercely independent feminist and a lot of other things that perhaps traditionally Ghanaian culture might not like. It was a challenging proposition, but one I felt I had to make. I didn't know how I would be received or whether I'd be accepted. I was incredibly excited, but also really anxious and a bit nervous. I remember landing in Accra. The door to the aircraft opening and just looking out and seeing the heat steaming off the tarmac in the early morning twilight. Red dust particles and a wave of humidity cloaked me. And yet I felt immediately at ease. As I walked down the steps, I couldn't wait to feel the ground beneath me. And when I did, that two-foot square of tarmac felt like home. It felt strange to be so familiar. Just breathing in that air for the first time. In that moment, thousands of my ancestors whispered, Welcome. They whispered, Aquaba. And then very quickly I was catapulted into the disorientation of the extremely busy arrivals lounge. My uncle Francis was waiting for me. I hadn't ever met him in my adult life. We both had massive beaming smiles when we saw each other. And when we hugged and greeted each other, it was like I was coming back after being away for a month, not decades. That instant familiarity that you have with family, even when you don't really know them. Some strange magic going on there. We drove to North Kaneshi, my grandmother's neighbourhood, and I revelled in watching the city come to life. Watching people commuting, and for it to look so different from London. The heat, the noises, the stray goats. Women carrying amazing, incredible things on their heads with ease and grace and swagger. The traffic was insane, and the noise, well, it was a complete sensory overload. And I was filming the whole thing on my iPhone, beaming ear to ear. Then we got to my grandmother's compound and there were at least 20 different people to greet a version of me 30 years older. It was a bit of a fuzzy blur. I didn't really recognise any face, but everyone had a nappy story or a toddler moment to reflect back to me as if I could remember. From that point forward, I was ensconced in my grandmother's house and constantly overfed. I remember the first breakfast, a rude awakening at 5am by the cockerel, shortly followed by my big, fat Ghanaian breakfast. Actually, it was three breakfasts. It was a crazy, crazy hot, typical July day in Ghana. And Mercy made me what she thought was an English breakfast of beef sausages, a scrambled egg and an English muffin. And as soon as I cleared that plate, a little disappointed that I wasn't getting some local goodness, Next up was corned beef stew and yam, a dish I remember preparing over and over again as a child after school. At this point, I'm sweating so hard, (laughs) but they wouldn't let me leave. They just kept putting plate down after plate down. It got so bad, I couldn't actually go anywhere that day. I just ended up sleeping for most of the day. The whole time I was there, it was very much about feeding me, but not necessarily feeding me the food that I wanted, the local food, At first there was an inclination to feed me things that they thought I would like from the UK. If I wanted what I came for, I was going to have to speak up. I got to spend some time with my grandmother, 
who at the time was in her 80s. She used a walking frame, but she still had the energy to dance into a room behind it, and she did, every time. I learned a lot about how chubby my bottom was as a toddler, how greedy I was for fufu, how I was curious and a fast learner, and speaking baby fanti and tree, which I can't even speak today, I'm embarrassed to say. Also, more importantly, I learned about my dad and what he was like. We had a lot more in common than I thought. Like me, my dad was very entrepreneurial, and I had learned that he won the Commonwealth Writing Prize when he was just 12. I learned for the first time that writing was something we both shared in common. But of course, the other part of the trip was discovering recipes. I had actually kept it a secret from my family that my trip had anything to do with food because I didn't want the pressure of them knowing I cooked Ghanaian fare back in London. So I was on a bit of a secret mission. I would get my Aunt Evelyn to take me to Kaneshi Market and she would show me her way to cook things. One of these days we went shopping for ingredients for groundnut soup. We came back to cook it together. At that point, I had to tell her about what I did for a living. My aunt said, Oh, so catering, you are caterer. <laughs> the bubble of my ego popped. And then she was like, Oh, okay, you're going to make the groundnut for us to dinner. At the market, she had collected giant African land snails and blue shell crabs and wele, which is cowhide. All kinds of things that I would never put in my groundnut in London. I had to cook her version of the dish, essentially, with those ingredients. Surf and turf, groundnut style. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a giant land snail before. It's quite something. Piercing it with a skewer and twisting it and pulling it out. It was a very brutal, hands-on experience. Everyone approved quite heartily. Most of them were unable to hide their surprise. My grandmother responded with the ultimate compliment. Mmm... Tasty, yes, it's very tasteful. Then I told them more about what I did back in London. They found it very funny that I knew what any of the ingredients were or the names of the dishes that I could get hold of those things in London, let alone that I knew what to do with them. They were also very, very surprised that there was an audience receptive to this cuisine that wasn't Ghanaian and that was willing to pay money to eat it. Despite that, food was the language that became common for all of us. And I wanted to make sure, when I was writing and talking about Ghanaian food back in England, I was getting it right. I was really concerned that I didn't want Ghanaians to feel like I was appropriating their culture or doing it an injustice in any way. And I wasn't sure how much license I had to adapt and extrapolate and play with recipes. There was no canon ahead of me. There was no easy reference point for what else could happen with these ingredients. One thing I wasn't expecting about the food in Ghana was the abundance of fresh ingredients, the abundance of fresh seafood, greens and herbs, and just how plant-based the diet was. When my dad had been cooking, it was always from a tin. When I visited the coastal town of Jamestown, I'd be cooking up fresh fish the fishermen just caught off the line. Mackerel, barracuda, prawns, octopus, scallops, squid, every type of seafood imaginable which I had no idea existed in Ghana until I went there. My six-foot-tall body moved around the country, cramped into the back of a Trotro bus. The bus routes were a magnet for street food vendors, with all these various different street foods and snacks and amazing things, from gizzards to chin-chin to milky treats. There were roadside eateries also called chop bars. Chop bars were essentially shacks on the side of the road with a makeshift kitchen. 
Some are a bit more permanent, most are a bit more makeshift. I would poke my head into the kitchen and say, what was that you just gave me? Would you mind teaching me how to make those gizzards, for example? Not everybody said yes, honestly, and there was a bit of resistance at first because people were suspicious. They were suspicious because I was pale-skinned. I was a bruni, a foreigner. That was also challenging. Being in Ghana as a half-Ghanaian and really desperately wanting to be accepted as one of their own, just to be constantly faced with the fact that you're not considered one of their own. Even within my own family, that was something I had to wrestle with a bit. But eventually I built trust and I managed to get so many recipes along the road. Everything from entrobe fro to okra stew to banku to fante fish stew. And of course the classics such as red red and jollof. If I hadn't made that trip, I wouldn't have been able to write the cookbook. More than half the recipes in there came from that trip. After six weeks, I came back with this armory of recipes to play with. I felt encouraged by the fact that three different women in my grandmother's house cooked jollof, considered a national dish, somewhat differently, either baking it or adding a specific ingredient from the region they came from. For example, Mercy would add dawa dawa. I didn't feel so conflicted anymore about adding my fresh thyme and garlic to my jollof at home. I came back with a great amount of creative license. So many ingredients existed in Ghana that I didn't know were there. The legacy of the spice roots and the colonials, what they had left behind. All of these things were part of Ghanaian cuisine. So I had this new license that I could create new dishes and they would still be Ghanaian because they were still singing Ghana's flavour. My biggest regret, I suppose, was that I hadn't gone back sooner. My grandmother kept saying to me, Go and come back. Go and come back. Go and come back. It was a mantra that I eventually have tattooed on my wrist now. A Sankofa symbol from the Adjinka symbols, which means go back and fetch it. My grandmother has passed away, sadly. But I remember her words as this wisdom and instruction and proverb all at the same time. It felt to me that she was saying, go where you're going, but make sure you come back. It's another way to say, come back to yourself. Wherever you go, you are here. This is your home. Back home, I felt quite sad that I hadn't grown up around Ghanaian culture. I'd missed out on the big wedding ceremonies and birth ceremonies and naming ceremonies and, of course, the famous celebratory funerals. I didn't learn the language as a kid because my dad wanted my sister and I to assimilate. However, the gift of my time there was knowing that Ghana would always be available to me to connect with at any time I want to. And one of the ways I can do that almost instantly is through food. Just like my dad would do when he cooked for himself. Going and coming back. Food can be this amazing tool. It can be a bridge between cultures. Even if it's food that isn't connected to our homeland or ancestry, what we eat and how we cook it, it says a lot about us. It's very revealing of our souls. It's very revealing of how we care for each other and how we care for ourselves. I don't know how I would have otherwise found a relationship with my culture given my circumstances and the tools that were available to me at the time. And for me, that's an ongoing process. It's unfolding. I'm still becoming. I'm still learning, as we all are. But I learn more each time I cook, and I invite anybody who's hungry. 
up with Zoe Ajanya. Since that initial trip to Ghana, Zoe has returned several times, both for food and family. In fact, she'll be there again in December 2021. This time, she's traveling with chef Chris Kimball, founder of America's Test Kitchen, for an episode of Milk Street, Kimball's TV show and podcast. Want more Zoe? Sign up for a virtual cooking class on her website, zoesgonakitchen.com. Subscribe to her podcast, Cooking Up Consciousness. And of course, check out and cook from her book. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. That's you. Now let's hear from Roger Hill from Long Island, New York. The Gorongoro Disco. The memory of that night is as fresh as if it had occurred just yesterday. Over a decade ago, we're on safari in Tanzania. One of our first stops was the Gorongoro Crater, which is called the Noah's Ark of Africa due to the abundance of wildlife and species there. By a quirk of fate, a party of four, which was supposed to be in our vehicle, never arrived. So we had our private guide and driver, Calvin, the whole time we were in Africa. The first night we came to Gorongoro, we arrived at the group camp and had a multi-generational family of 10 joining us at dinner. However, the second night, we had the camp all to ourselves. Just before dinner, as the sunset was about to occur, we had started having our cocktails on the rim of the crater. I had broken out my iPod and battery-operated speaker so we could listen to opera while we watched the last of the sun's rays. As sunset approached, one of the kitchen crew from the camp came by to refresh our drinks. He stared intently at the speaker and the music. He had never seen anything like that before. It was as if a scene had happened out of the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy. He explained he was only 17 and wanted to be known as the best dancer in the nightclubs in the city. Again, he stared intensely at the music. I switched over the playlist to some Johnny Cash tunes, and he started memorizing and singing the words to one of his hit songs, Hey Porter, Hey Porter. As evening closed in, we entered the dining room. We sat with our driver, Calvin, while the kitchen crew was, quote, behind the curtain preparing the meal. Our young man came out again and asked if he could look at the iPod. Before I knew it, he had dialed in Shania Twain and had the kitchen crew coming out and singing and dancing. It seemed they knew all the words to her songs. He was the coolest cat in town as he started dancing. My wife came out and said, you know what, let me teach him some swing dance moves. And the group formed a circle around them. They all clapped and howled with delight as they danced. Suddenly, the manager, a man who was approximately 20 to 30 years older than anyone in the camp, came out wearing a fancy hat, and he burst into the center of the dance circle and started to strut his stuff, showing all the moves. No one had ever seen him in that relaxed position before. I had visions of animals gathering outside the tent, swaying in the breeze, the hyenas, the giraffes, the elephants, as they listened to the music. At the end of the trip, we left our speakers behind as a gift to the kitchen crew. An unforgettable evening. The Gorongoro Disco. That was listener Roger Hill. 
Roger will finally return to Africa in May 2022, he says he'll visit both Botswana and Cape Town, a trip that's been postponed twice in the last year plus. Third time's a charm. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?